Welcome to Beyond the Lines. I'm your host, Jason Davis. You can follow this podcast on Facebook at Beyond the Lines Podcast, on Instagram, Beyond the Lines Podcast, and also on Twitter at underscore Beyond the Lines. This is episode number 11, and this episode will be about character part two. So my guest today is a familiar name. We had him on about a month ago, and we were talking about character. So today we're going to talk about part two of character. He's a former Division I college basketball coach and the author of 10 Principles of a Character Coach. Coach Gary Waters, welcome to the show again. Thanks, Jason. It's a joy to be on. Well, it's great to have you back on. Uh, we talked about it last time. We were going to make it work and get you back on the show, and, and then we'll finish up what we talked about last time. And so it's great to have you back on the show. Yes, yes, indeed. Before we kind of get into the meat of this interview, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Final Four. Okay. The last time I had you on. It was getting sort of towards the end and getting down to that final four. So I have to admit, we talked a lot prior to the first interview. We talked off air. And one of the thoughts I had about Gonzaga, because at that time we were talking about Gonzaga, and I was on record saying, as we talked off air, that I just wasn't sold on Gonzaga simply because they played sort of in that West Coast conference. They didn't really have, you know, throughout the entire year, ton of competition. And my thoughts then were, it's easy to kind of get up for a big game against, you know, the big boys of the, of the college basketball world one time. But right. when it comes to the NCAA tournament and you have to do it night after night for six games in a row, it's a little bit tougher. Yes, so I was yes. really concerned about whether or not they'd be able to win the tournament. And so as we talked in the first interview, I said, OK, I'm seeing this now. I didn't see anyone in the tournament that could beat Gonzaga. They played Baylor and Baylor handled them easy. <laughs> to me, I look at that more of what. Baylor did more so than what Gonzaga couldn't do. I know a lot of people are going to say, well, on Saturday, Gonzaga had that very emotional win at the last second and, and all those things. But in my opinion, whether Gonzaga beat them by 20 points or they wanted the buzzer like they did, I don't think that they were going to beat Baylor on Monday night the way Baylor played. So what are your thoughts on how Gonzaga played in that game and what Baylor did to Gonzaga that night? Well, you know, you brought a lot of thoughts there. And when you think about that game, it kind of had a telling tale Saturday before. Like you said, Gonzaga played UCLA and they handled them pretty easily. Was it UCLA? Gonzaga it was, uh, I believe it was UCLA. Oh, yes, yeah, Gonzaga. I'm sorry. Gonzaga played them on Saturday and on that last second shot. And it was just it was very emotional, mm -hmm. very emotional. Now, you need to understand, and this is my thinking, when you play an emotional game like that, you need some time to be to come down from that. They had a day. That's literally hard to do. It really is. And I'm going to say that had a lot to do with how they came out and started the game. It, it didn't mean how they played the entire game, just how they started the game. And then when you look at what how uh, how Baylor took care of, of Houston, I mean, they did, dismantled Houston. When I looked at that game, and I really liked Houston, I thought they did a lot of the similar things that Baylor did, but uh, and even was as physical. But when they how they handled them made me think, you know, Gonzaga could be in for trouble. Now, what made me think they could be in for trouble were two things. One, their athleticism, 
They had great athleticism and two, their quickness. Now, when you put those two things on the floor at one time, it's hard to deal with. And the one thing I seen it throughout that entire game, that Baylor was much quicker and they had more athleticism. And I thought that affected Baylor throughout the entire game on both sides of the ball, both offensively and defensively. It was hard for them to get into their offense. It was hard for uh, them to stop them from penetration. You know, you've you seen Baylor hit all the threes, but that came off of penetration. Get inside, kick outside, guy wide open, three-point. And I, I didn't think they had any answer for that. However, at the same time, when I looked at that game, when you look at it, you say, oh, Gonzaga just wasn't good enough. You know, they were. It's just that they came, you know, I call it the perfect storm. They came in a team with great quickness and great speed. Plus, they had a tough game the night before, and it was just hard for them to get going in that game. Because uh, when you think about it, I think they went like five for 22 from three, okay? Five for, just say five for 23. You add five more threes to that. If they would have hit their threes, now they're right in the game. Exactly. Yeah, and when you look at it, look at it that way. However, they couldn't hit their threes because of the defense <laughs> Baylor was playing. So it was a, it was a two, two-edged sword. Do you think anyone would have beaten Baylor that night? No, not at all, especially this year. And one thing we fail to realize, Jason, is that Baylor was the number one, was a number one seed last year. And they had a chance to win it last year. And they, and they had two other very good players that had left the team. And I'm telling you, it was in the, the inevitable what I look at, that this team was on, on a course to get to a certain place. They started last year and the COVID, you know, kind of overted them into a different direction. And then they came back this year with the same mission in mind and same goal. And they went out and, and, and did what they were supposed to do. Now, and they even had some times where things went poorly for them. For instance, the COVID hit them for about three weeks and they were down for three weeks and they missed them a few games. And then they came back and that's when they lost their two games. If that hadn't happened, they may have not have lost those two games. And both teams would have been going into the championship game undefeated. And I'm going to tell you, because of the schedule, as you had mentioned, Baylor would have been ranked number one and Gonzaga would have been two. But because Gonzaga was undefeated throughout an entire year, they just couldn't take that from them. Interesting. That's a very good point. The last time we had you on the show, we talked a lot about the athletes of today versus the athletes when you coached 15 years ago or so. You're friends with and or coached against some of the greatest coaches in college basketball history, coaches like Bobby Knight, John Thompson, may he rest in peace, and Gene right. Cady. They left the coaching ranks years ago. How would they do coaching today's athletes versus the athletes of 20 plus years ago? Oh, man, that's a tough one there, Jason. And I'm going to tell you why, because the player today is a little different than the player of yesterday. And I don't mean in regards to their abilities, physical abilities. And even many, uh, I can say their mental state was a little different back then. But I'm telling you that the parents brought their kids up differently during those times. And during those times, I mean, they, they were highly disciplined. They put other people ahead of them first and all that. This group today, that's all different. That's all different. And when you get involved in that, and if you're not used to that, like let's take ex example of Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight was from the military. And he coached at a military school before he went to Indiana. And uh, and, at, and even at that military school, he had Coach K as one of his players and then an assistant coach. So all that went together. And, and so the kind of kid that came to him were disciplined. They listened. They, they did exactly what you told them to do. Now, all of a sudden, you got a kid that questions what you do. Absolutely. And they wonder, is it, is it right or is it wrong? And then they move in certain directions. So for him, it would have been very difficult dealing with this type of kid today. However, 
the on the court stuff would have basically been the same, except for one thing. The game changed back maybe about six, seven years ago when they said they wanted the, the game to have more free flow. And they took all the physicality out of the game. And now you don't see that toughness. And it's and you can see it at the NBA level. You know, you put your hands on them, it's a foul. And you can't use the body check and all those kind of things that has made this game audience-friendly game. Absolutely. Meaning they love to see the ball going up and down the court and all the shots going up. And when they go in, it really looks good. And when they, when they don't go in, it looks bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Many of the coaches that you're friends with and or coached against, Jim Beheim, Mike Krzyzewski, and John Calipari have continued to coach despite having so much success, despite the landscape of college basketball today, such as the one-and-done rule and the transfer portal. Why have they continued to coach when guys like Coach Bobby Knight and Coach Thompson have retired years ago? Well, you know what I think it is, Jason? I think those coaches were set in their ways, and they were very disciplined in those ways. And they felt their way was successful. And it truly was the best in the business. But what happened is since all these changes occurred, there needs some, to be some ad, adaptation going on. And I don't think they could deal with that as opposed to ones that stayed in it and dealt with it. I think they had to make those adjustments and they made it. Now they don't even have to make a bigger adjustment now because you got that portal situation coming on and now they got to hit the recruiting is going to change immensely for it. Yes, sir. Make that adjustment are the ones that will have more success than the other. So what are your thoughts on the new crop of coaches such as Mike Cronin from UCLA, Tony Bennett at University of Virginia, Jay Wright at Villanova and many others? You talked about some, some good people. Jay Wright is a close friend of mine and Tony Bennett. I, you know, I've known ever since he played, this is how much I go back with them and, and Tony played against my son. That tells you the, the time frame there. Those two I just mentioned are truly character coaches. And they run their programs with character. And that's why they've had so much success. Cronin, I know well, too, because he was in the Midwest at Cincinnati when I was at Cleveland State. And, and he's done a fabulous job, unbelievable job. But you know what? I, the reason why I think, and I'm going to just mention Cronin, because I thought he did a great job this year. And I, the reason why I felt he had so much success he didn't change who he was. We talked about the times changes and, and they're not able to adapt. He has made a decision that this is the way we're going to play basketball and we're not going to change. And now, what do I mean by that? He took his style of play out to the West Coast. The West Coast style is more of today's system, meaning free flow, shooting. Showtime. <laughs> Showtime. <laughs> and, you know, and some in the East, they would call it soft basketball. But for the West, they would call it fun basketball. They would just go after it. And what Cronin did is take that tough, gritty basketball from the from the Midwest out to the West. The young men he, and this is why I believe he had so much success. The young men he had, had great skill level. And now when I say soft and when I say fun ball, I'm talking skilled basketball, mm -hmm. not as much physical basketball. And when he took that out there, he, what I say, ended up having a some great talent in his program that were fundamentally sound and could do great things. I mean, they had the skill level, but did they have the toughness? He had to instill that in them. And now they went to the floor they had, they were instilled with some toughness and they had great skill level. So it was hard to deal with that team. It's funny that you mentioned that because for years, West Coast basketball, in particular schools like UCLA, always had that sort of moniker that they were soft, that <laughs> they didn't have that physical toughness, that they can score, but if you post them up, if you if you get physical with them, they have a tough time competing. 
Well, let me give you this. I went to a one-on-one clinic in my earlier days, and it was with Bobby Knight. And he was talking to, it was about six of us, and he was talking to the group about what should you have in your program and on the floor and all these type of things. But he made a statement that I kept with me all my life. And the statement was, at all times on the court, you want three parts tough and two parts soft. And I said, man, that doesn't sound right to me. You know, so in my me thinking, I said, why can't you have five tough guys out there? So I asked uh, Coach Knight, I said, let me ask you this. Would it hurt to have five tough guys out there? He said, well, that's kind of, I mean, and then you, he said, that's going to be tough because you can't complete all the different things out. The reason why you have two soft, I don't mean physically soft. I mean that they're more skilled type player. Okay. And they're free will and they shoot it. And he says, and someone's got to get those two, what they call soft, open. Mm-hmm. That's what they use the toughness, the three-part toughness to do. And they keep all the, the pain and struggles from them. And I said, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. But I said, now, but if you had... Five guys that were skilled and tough, you'd have a pretty good team. He said, yeah, that was Georgetown at the time. (laughs) (laughs) John Thompson had some really good teams, I can tell you that. Oh, yeah. So I need you to put your owner or GM hat on. So you're the owner or GM with the number one overall pick in the 2021 NBA draft. Who are you selecting number one? Boy, boy, that's a tough one. Uh, You know, you need to give me time to think about that one. But let me tell you something. Uh, I still like the kid from Gonzaga, the center from Gonzaga, because he's very skilled. And in this game today, that 5-5-4 man must be skilled. Before, you could get away with that big pivot guy inside that be on the block and post up and score. But now you got to have that five-man step out, be able to be, if he's a great passer, you know, now he helps everyone else get open. And I still like that that type of player, but I think for him, he would be good in the game today. Now, do you see GMs or owners seeing him as a number one pick? Well, you know, we, we, we live in a different time today, like I told you before, and they, and they want things ready-made, and they look, uh, and, and oftentimes in the NBA, they look what, what the potential is. So that's why you have a lot of one-and-dones coming in there. So the young man that's at, um, at, uh, or- at uh, not Oregon, he's at, you talk Cade Cunningham? Cunningham, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they, they think he's going to be the number one, and it's because of his future potential. Back in the day, you know, they didn't look at you coming in as immediate gratification, come in and have the success immediately. They looked at a person that we would have to develop, give him a couple of years, then put him in there, and he's ready to go. That's why, and I'm going to tell you why, and, and why that is still important today. If you look at the Hall of Fame, there are many of them are not one and dones. Because that one reason, because they went to four years of college, Correct. gained experience and knowledge from the coaches they were under, you know, and I mean, at least three years, because, you know, you take Jordan. Jordan was in there three years, and during three years, he learned a lot from his coach. Right. And now when he when he went in the NBA, he was somewhat prepared. Mm-hmm. What I'm seeing is a lot of young men going in there not prepared, and it takes them a little while to get going, and then they get it going because of their talent. Right, and I see... Aside from talent, Kate Cunningham versus Tim, is the marketability. The NBA will be able to market Cade Cunningham a little bit better than they would the kid from Gonzaga. Cade would sell more jerseys. And that's what it comes down to. As we talked about in the first interview, is follow the money. And Cade <laughs> certainly would bring more marketability, more viewership to the NBA versus the kid from Gonzaga. And that has nothing to do with his talent or his ability uh, not being able to be very good in the NBA but certainly Cade would be more of a marketability uh, issue for the NBA. And I think that's why he would go number one. And then you add in the talent as well. 
Well, that's that's true. That's very true today, and and it's even more important for the individual organization because they're they're looking for that. That's very important to them. But they also looking. I got to be honest with you. They're also looking for the potential of that player. Absolutely, he's got a great upside. They know it's hard to lose in in that regards, and they get to market him as well. For a minute here, I just want to get away a little bit from the basketball topic, and I want to talk to you a little bit about one of the topics that I've had. Uh, in the past. So I've had on a couple of young athletes, 14 years old, 12 years old, and we've talked about different topics. And one of the topics that I've talked about with some of the young kids was about the race issue uh, in this country and how it relates with sports. I had on a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old a couple of weeks ago, and I asked them what their thoughts were in terms of us as parents, coaches, and even other athletes. How have we handled the race issue in this country? and what we can do as parents, coaches, and athletes do to improve the race issue in this country. What are your thoughts on what we can do as coaches and parents do to improve the race relationship in this country? Yeah, I mean, that's a big issue today. And uh, I'm even handling some of that. You remember I told you I in my book, 10 Principles, one of the things I'm doing is meeting with the police force. Mm-hmm. My whole is doing a workshop for them. And I probably won't start them till the fall because we're trying to get out of totally out of this pandemic so we can physical distance between each in that process. But, you know, the whole thing I'm trying to teach them is the importance of character and why you need it in your life. And it prevents some of these things from occurring. And so as a coach and as a parent, it's vital that you explain not only what's happening in our society, but how to handle themselves within society. Because when a police stops them, what are you supposed to do? Or you're driving a car, what are you supposed to do? And many children today haven't had haven't had that conversation with their parents. Correct. And so what ends up happening is when, because they feel, the kid today feel more entitled than the kid yesterday. And I'm going to talk about it in my next book coming out, how important that is. And see, the kid today feel that things should be as status quo. We should we should do exactly the way we feel we should do. And they speak out about it. And I think as parents, as coaches, you got to tell them to speak out, but you got to tell them to speak out in the right agenda. But when you're confronted with the law enforcement, you have to learn how to deal with them and work according. And that's what I think is happening. You made a good point there because it reminds me of what the 12 year old said when I asked him that question. And he mentioned that the looting and burning of cars and everything isn't the right way to go about it. And I said to him, I would agree with him. And certainly most people would agree with him that doing those types of things aren't going to accomplish anything. And so my follow-up question was to him was, you look at the NBA players and NFL players and many players across other sports, the way in which they protested was to take a knee. So, and they were told, well, you shouldn't take a knee. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. If they're protesting the quiet way and not burning down and looting and all those things, but yet they're still being told they're doing things the wrong way by taking a knee, what is it that they're supposed to do so that their gripes are heard? And he mentioned it, you know, he understands that, but what are people supposed to do if they're not supposed to do these outlandish acts, which again, most of us would agree you shouldn't do, but you do it the quiet way and you're still told, no, you can't do it. What is someone supposed to do? Well, let me give you this. Martin Luther King did it the quiet way. He didn't go out and fight and bring artillery to a conversation or a time that when groups met together. And I said this to say that today we have to be aware and know when to voice our opinions and when to bring them forth. Just voicing your opinion may not get you anywhere. Correct. You got to make sure you're at the right time in the right place. And I commend the NBA on how they did it. 
They constantly did it on media, uh, out in front, under certain platforms. And when those platforms came across, people seen it. So there was some response. Now, are you getting any results? That's the question. And that's what everyone's waiting for out of results. In yes. our society today, things aren't handled very quickly. And unless you're patient, and I mentioned Martin Luther King earlier, he was very, very patient. And that's why he was able to accomplish what he was able to accomplish. And so you have to be patient, but you can't stop voicing your opinion, moving forward and letting everyone know. And if you don't, it'll just go by the wayside again. Everyone will forget it. Absolutely. Right now Absolutely. we have Floyd in our face because of the, the trials and everything that's going on. But if we don't continue to march and talk about what went on during that time, many police officers will look at that and say, well, that was that person. We don't do that. And we're just moving on. However, there may be some on their force that still feel when, when someone comes up to me and I'm threatened, I'm going to do something. Now, do you feel like, and I understand the point you, you made there, but couldn't you say that is actually the case? Because before George Floyd, there was someone else. And before that person, it was someone else. So yes, it's continuous. Yes. So we're continuously marching. We're continuously talking about it. We're continuously having these conversations, but they continue to happen. So <laughs> yes, I, on one end, I do agree with what you said. We do need to keep talking about those things and protesting it and so forth. But at some point, there has to be a change. There has to be sort of that that tidal wave to get the things over the hump so that these don't continue to happen, whether it's a, a change in reform from the police standpoint, whether it's some form of change, social policies and things like that. There has to be something where it's no longer about just being patient, just being patient and it'll change because patience has been going on for hundreds of years and it hasn't changed. So at some point there has to be that change. No, that's right. That's right. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think it has to start at a certain level. I mean, right now, you know, at, at the political side, we need to start moving on this. Like you indicated, reforms, things need to make some changes. But at the same time, we have to educate them. Because I think that's a big problem in our society. I think people sometimes work out of non-education. They just respond to things. And so the more we educate them, and I say that for our children, the more we educate them, the more they will stay out of trouble and things won't happen. But if we don't educate them and we let them go on their own, then negative things could occur because they don't know what they're facing out in this world. I would agree with you 100% on that, 100%. So you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, you're writing a new book. So let's talk about that new book. What was the inspiration behind this? Well, you know, uh, I'm still focused on character and importance that is in life and, mm -hmm. and God leads me in that direction. On the other side of this, I was thinking about the, the people we are facing today or that I have faced in the, in, in the recent times. And that was the millennials. So at that time, I said, what can I talk about millennials to educate people? Because I'm going to tell you this, once I started writing the book or starting, started to put information together, one of the things I had to do is research information for the book. So I literally got seven books. They're all right here in front of me, all seven, because each day I'm working on <laughs> And those seven tell me about millennials. Just to give you an idea, I got one that talks about uh, a message to millennials, social change. And the one I really like here is the, it's the most newest one that I got from my publisher called Millennial Whispers. And the reason why I like this one is because it talks about the good millennials have done in our society and how, the, how you could work with them and have them be successful. Now, I said work because all these books, all seven of these books talk about millennials, but it's talking about them in the workplace. Each and every one of them talk about them. And there's one that says a few things about sport, but it's, it's an aftermath. 
that says not everyone gets a trophy. You know what that means. Absolutely. So in reading those, I, I come to the conclusion that they haven't looked at character in this time and day in regards to sports. They just let sports work on its own. Mm -hmm. And I think parents, administrators, educators believe that sports do so so much for them in becoming a better person. We don't have to say anything about it. But I think even that, you're forgetting on the important factors, how important character is in a person's life. And that's why I told you, Jason, that When I'm doing these workshops, and that came to mind, I said, you know, all these issues we have in our society and what's going on today, especially directly with the police force, I said, how could I help? And what I said to myself is that I could help by giving them information. They may not use the information because think about it. Many of these police officers have been set in their ways for 20, 30, 40 years. Now, for you to go in there and say, hey, change tonight, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. Correct. (laughs) Many of them would avoid you. But so on the same side of that, I don't think anyone runs away from information. And if it's good information and they feel that that they can hear this information, maybe it'll make them think about themselves and make some adjustments in their life. Absolutely. I I would agree with that. If you give them what they need, it's up to them to use it. But at least now they're armed with the proper information. Correct. Correct. And I feel when you talk about character, it's not as threatening as other things. And I really felt when I started this whole project is that I would be perfect to give this information to them. A couple of reasons. One, I got some psychological background, so I could use psychology in here as well. But if they brought in a a psychologist to do this, they would be probably turned away and they would look at it and say, hey, we don't need this. Why are you bringing that information? But I think that being a coach allows them to connect. They've all had a coach in their life at some point, and I'm not a threatening source. And they know most coaches are in the business to help the young athlete. So at the same time, I felt if I do this and give them this information, now they can see here's another way to do this. And I should, I should look at myself. And that's the biggest thing. Let me, let me mention this one thing. My whole purpose for this is for them to look at themselves because oftentimes they don't look at themselves and they look at someone else and they say, well, he's doing that, not me. But when you think about prejudice and all these things, some people say, I'm not prejudiced, but they haven't really looked at themselves and how, they, how they're coming about this. I so agree. the whole purpose behind it. I agree. So during your research, what major differences did you find between the Gen Z generation that you coached years ago and the millennials? Uh, Gen Zs, you know, I had the millennials mid to, the, to somewhat near the end of my career. Mm-hmm. And the Gen Zs were, I think the, big, the biggest difference, I'm, I'm going half and half, I got to straighten it out for you. I thought the, the Gen Zs, were taught differently from their parents. Now, one of the things I found consistent with all the generations, I went all the way back to the baby boomers, even before the baby boomers, and all came away with the same concept of the issues that they had with their children. And number one was inconsistent parenting. Hmm. Now, think about that now. You go back all yes. through time, all the different people with their parenting styles and what occurred. Man, I, I mean, I, I heard some strange things going on as the more I was reading. However... Today, they're getting parenting, but sometimes it may not lead them in the right direction. Like I told you, a trophy for everyone. That, you know, that's a different way of doing it. Helicopter parents, and I won't get into all these different types of parents. But these kids are getting this parenting to them, and they're using it accordingly. So the difference I feel is that the parenting issue is the main key. And when I looked at this whole thing, the first thing when I first started, I came, I came to the conclusion that man, it's all about the kid, but the kid is just a source in this process. I understand. You know, it's been people training this kid, just people giving this kid information. 
and how much and how less depends on the person that's giving this to them. And if they're giving them the right information, how to be successful in life and, and how to treat other people, then good things will happen. You know, I'm finding that the children today are less respectful, okay, and they're more willing to put themselves first above anything else. Whereas the Gen Z, their parents taught them to respect others, okay, work hard at what you do, and then go out and achieve. I'm not saying this generation or the millennial generation didn't say you're not supposed to work hard because I think the parent, they got that from their parent that told them to work hard. But they also told them that you go out and work and you're going to achieve whatever you want to achieve. And that's true to, to some degree. And that's where I don't think they were totally realistic to it because many of them would go out, work their tail off in college, get out of college and can't get a job because of the market. And then they had this big uh, debt behind them from what they ac right. accumulated in college. So, they, you know, there's a lot of misinformation given out. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I'm saying that now we have a, a whole new group that's coming out. And that Z group you're talking about, they're more equipped to handle technology and not only more equipped, it is a part of who they are. Millennials, it was coming out during their time and, and helped them grow. But as the one today in Gen Z's, it's who they are. I mean, you get a kid five years, or not even five, give him three years old, right. first thing he knows is what to punch on that computer. Hey, we haven't even talked your alphabet yet. Right. <laughs> and you punching that <laughs> stuff on in there. <laughs> it, 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 and you know what I said? You said the, You're absolutely the, right. the group that I had a, a large connection with was uh, a Generation X. You know, they're the ones right before that. I'm a, I'm a baby boomer, and then there was that Generation X that came out. And they were getting that same information from their parents, and they were taught how to work hard and do things right. And then all of a sudden, you know, they looked at these things and said, man, is this true to what's going on here? Think about in our time, in, uh, in the baby boomers' time, they looked at things through the government's eye. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on for the for the baby boomers, the government went backwards, meaning, you know, you had Nixon come in and all the things that happened then. And then all of a sudden they're looking, man, something isn't right here. But who was really looking at that was the Generation X mm -hmm. and looking at it and saying, this ain't right. I don't you know, I'm going I'm to demonstrate against this. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. And that's what happened. And as, as time progressed. Each generation, and generation is usually around 20 years, from 15 Absolutely. to 20 years. And Correct. when you get that generation moving in a direction, it's hard to, they, they, they steamroll through you and it's hard to stop. I completely agree. You're right about that. So finally, coach, as I've said before, during the height of your coaching career, you were coaching Gen Z kids. Now those players are in their early to mid thirties and coaching <laughs> youth athletes themselves. What advice would you give <laughs> You're them? You're exactly right. And you know what? When I think about the word character and one of the biggest issues that I'm concerned with is children raising children because you, you have single parent homes, kids not having people to connect with and the, the parent working long hours to provide and, and have success in their lives. So who's left behind the kid? And that's the Gen Z. Now that's that type of family. But then there's a type of family where they have two parents at home, both educated, both working their tail off for their son to be or son or daughter to be successful, but they don't know how to do it right. You know, they're overdoing it. You know, you remember the scandal that came out not too long ago about the kids going to college and the parents were getting involved in that and they found these inadequacies that went on. I mean, I mean, things that were just you'd never had thought about. But because of that, is because of how those parents responded to that. Yes. And then their kids 
they were listening, saying this is yes. the way it should be done, and they're believing this. So we live in a time, in, in an important time, and when you add the pandemic to it and social unrest, you know, this is an important time. You know, and I look at the, the unrest we're having, there was no difference in this than in the 60s. People look at it and say, well, we got different times, but what's going on was happening in the 60s. The key is that we haven't left that space. Correct. We're still in that Absolutely. same space and we haven't gotten much, much better. And I think we should. I have a follow-up to that. So two parts. One, what is it that we need to do or needs to be done to leave that space? And the second part is, do you see that happening? <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, we need to leave that space and we got to figure out how to leave that space. And I think that's what we're into right now, how to function, how to deal within that space. And information is coming out on a daily basis. And I don't know where it will lead us, but I think it's got to lead us to a different point of view. When it happened in the 60s, what was happening is we're saying we won't accept this anymore. We're going to say something against this. And they came out and they did. Many people lost their lives. All kinds of things happened during that period of time. Today, we're not at that level, but we're still facing similar issues that we need to come out. And, and leaving that space, we got to be more educated. I think that's number one. And we got to have a different look at the process. Because if we see the process not doing us well, we need to find remedies to deal with the process. You talked about change. That's a big factor. And then I have mentioned the police force. That's a big factor. We need certain kind of change. And until we get those changes, we'll be still in that space. Because think about it. You know, you had the Floyd issues and all the things that went down here. A week ago, you had another issue right in the same city. We really haven't changed that space. And one thing we spend less time talking about, which I think is vital, is what I call the fear factor. I think many of these issues occur because people are fearful. Mm -hmm. And when they encounter one of these kind of processes, they get so fear and then reactions happen that they or responses. And I call it reactions because why I say reactions mm -hmm. is because they react to it immediately. Agreed. Without thinking. And when you do that, only negative things are going to happen. I go back to what you said a few minutes ago, and I think it's absolutely key is education. I think if we can educate, and particularly our young kids, and that's, that's what this podcast, Beyond the Lines, is about, is bringing life issues and life situations to young kids and allow them to be able to voice their opinions and also be a part of the decision making. Because I think for so often, for so long, we say to kids, well, you know, you're too young, you don't have the experience, you don't know what you're talking about be quiet, sit over in a corner. And to right. some degree, I kind of understand it and I get that. But as I've said before in an episode I had before, if we really listen to the young kids, a lot of times they have some really good ideas. Oh, they yes. may not have the experiences and the knowledge that grownups have, but they do have some great information and some great knowledge and great thoughts on how to change things the way they are. And that kind of ties in a little bit with some of these Gen Z kids where they know this technology stuff. They're more advanced when it comes to the thought process. And so if we can listen to these kids and kind of get their take on it, perhaps we'll find some answers in some of these ideas that these young kids have. And that's what I try and do with Beyond the Lines is cater this more towards the youth and the young kids and get them involved and get their thoughts and also educate them so that they can make better decisions. So hopefully we can kind of get out of that space that we were just talking about. And hopefully we can have a better situation moving forward for everyone. Okay, that's very good, Jason, the information you just gave. And I'm just going to add to that a little bit and it's going to reflect on my book, okay? In my book, 
I don't talk about directly a specific principle about education, but everything is talking about being educated. However, I do talk about two specific areas. And I think there are a part of what's happening in our society today that we need to overcome or need to work with. And those two things are, one is respect. I think that's a big point in our society that we are not respecting others. When you see some of these incidents that are occurring, they're going into that situation or that encounter with a lack of respect. I couldn't agree more. When I work with the police officers, I don't call it encounter. I call it confrontation. And when they go into that confrontation and they look at the person, they're immediately making a decision, do I respect that person? And I don't use the exact word respect in the principal title, but I talk about it all through the principal. And you will probably agree with me here that it's principal four and it says, treat others the way you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. In our society, we're not getting a lot of that. And that's what's happening. Secondly, when I think about it, I said respect. And then the other thing I want you to to just think in mind and get a, a real feel on is, are we as a total group, are we? Are we really trusting the people that's around us? Now think about that now. Are we trusting the police force? Are the police force trusting us? And so that's all, and that you, you and they all kind of piggyback on each other. When you think about the trust, then you get into respect. Why should I trust them if I don't respect them? You know, and all this kind of thing. But I'm saying if we can try to control those two areas, two areas I talk about in depth in my book about trust and respect, you can become a better person. Coach Waters, I'm going to leave it right there. I think you summed it up perfectly right there. <laughs> what are the ways in which people can get in touch with you? Well, I got my own website. That's a character coach with Gary Waters. And you just plug it up. It'll come on and talk about the book. It'll talk about a lot of things that I talk about on a daily basis or on a monthly basis, at least. And then uh, the other way, if you want to purchase this book, you can go on Amazon or go to Barnes and Nobles. They have them directly. So if you can go to any one of any two of those places, you can get the book. The whole purpose of the book is for people to understand the importance of character and try to bring it in your lives as well as, as others. 10 Principles of a Character Coach. Everyone, I suggest that you go out and get this book. It's a wonderful read. Pass it on to a friend, pass it on to your kids. I suggest everyone get this book. It's a wonderful book, Coach. Oh, well, thank you. I, I know I know you didn't read it by now, correct? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, <laughs> and, prom and, and Go ahead. I'm sorry. And promise me you'll come back on when the second book is done. Oh, I definitely will. And because uh, uh, I think we need this in our society as well. So I will, I'm a part of your program. I greatly appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad you are a part of this program. You're a great inspiration. And I think this is what's going to get these kids thinking more. And maybe they'll become a little bit more active in, in not only what's going on on the field, but certainly more so what's going on off the field. Correct. Correct. I, I, I love that. Thanks a lot, coach. I really appreciate it. And I certainly look forward to talking to you again soon. Same here, Jason. All right. You too. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. Once again, I'd like to thank coach Waters for joining the show. So what are the three takeaways from today's episode? Number one, respect each other. Number two, educate yourself. And number three, be a person of high morals and character. That's it for episode number 11. If you enjoy this episode, I ask that you tell a friend to tell a friend. If you enjoy this podcast, I ask that you subscribe. Please tune in next Tuesday for the next episode. And as always, thanks for listening. Take care.